This is the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. Welcome to episode 6 in our Farmer series. Scott Day farms just south of Dand, Manitoba. He is also chief agronomist and a director with Fall Line Capital based in California. I've known Scott my whole life, and it is my pleasure to have him on the podcast. Here we go. Yeah, our family farm um, is about halfway between Hartney and Delrain, Manitoba, just on, on Highway 21. Um, my grandfather's grandfather uh, came to the area uh, well over 100 years ago, and uh, the home farm is, is still operated by my cousins about a mile south of where our farm is. Our farm was mostly a, a livestock a hog operation actually from just the, the mid 60s until about 2008 and uh, we did have grain production but the majority of the effort was put around raising pigs and i had decided i i wanted uh, a career in agriculture at a fairly young age and uh, was able to go to u of m and and i always wanted to be an ag rep but i didn't think i'd get that uh, job until i was older uh, there was a, a good friend of my dad who was an ag rep, and I always looked up to him and thought that would be a really cool job. And uh, I traveled for a couple of years after university working on farms in other countries. And when I came back, I actually got an ag rep job. <laughs> I was only 23 at the time, and uh, really it was uh, something I wasn't expecting, but it was a fantastic experience. Um, you get to be involved in all aspects of agriculture in your community. And then I also farmed and uh, I got to put my money where my mouth was, I guess, as far as some of the aspects of what we were doing and changing on the farm. We were uh, adopted no-till at a fairly early stage in that um, process. Uh, we were growing different crops. Uh, I, we grew dry beans in no-till situation, uh, sunflowers in no-till situation. Not always successfully, but we did attempt a lot of things that I was learning about on the job or I was talking about on the job I was doing on our own farm. And then um, it was just my it's just my father and I and it continues to this day. It's just the two of us that work the farm. Uh, it's kind of evolved into being a, um, a straightforward grain farm with uh, less acres than before. We've given up our rented acres because of my career off the farm has continued to to demand to, uh, to a lot of time I guess and we, we're we're keeping the cropping system relatively simple now just to make it less uh, uh, less of a distraction for these other things but uh, what, what crops farmed, are you growing in in the recent past we've grown soybeans black beans uh, pinto beans malt barley spring wheat winter wheat and canola and a variety of canolas like the and that's the uh, simplified rotation. That the I was so this year the simplified rotation is the malt barley, wheat, and canola. You and I grew up three miles apart at this community called Dand, and in a generation, a lot has changed there. And I'm probably more of a sentimental person than you, but um, like, does this is this something that that you think about, or is it it just is? Yeah, I, I don't know if you can be more sentimental than I, you know, I, I feel pretty privileged to be able to go back to my little town and, well, I don't even, it, I don't know if it ever qualified as a town, but 
to, to farm the land that's right beside the church and the school and so on is, is kind of, you know, brings a certain level of satisfaction. Uh, we were, I was married in the church looking at the canola field that was ours outside the window of the church. That's kind of a special thing. Um, and, and, you know, growing up in the community, there was uh, virtually no facilities, just the church, yet there was a real sense of community. There was a lot of uh, work that was done on our farm and, and uh, by the neighbors, uh, building bins and sheds and so on, as we did on, on our neighbors' farms as well. There was a lot of back and forth that way. Uh, we had the ball league, the infamous Dan Ball League, that uh, brought people from quite a distance and played on the Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And um, it is uh, it, it is a cause for nostalgia that those connections are no longer there. But uh, it was a, a very vibrant and uh, yeah. uh, interesting yeah, when, community. When you and I were kids, we had the Dan 4-H Club, which yeah, was out true. of the, well, it was in the church basement, right? Yeah. And we had the Dan United Church that everybody went to, or most people. We had the old school that was the community hall, which was where the ball field was. And and you and I participated in all of that, and all of that's gone now, within a generation. Yeah, in a, in a relatively short period of time, that's right. And that's, you know, it's the story for literally hundreds, if not thousands of small communities across Western Canada that the people just, there just isn't as many people around. Now, interestingly, Dan has one house in it. Um, and uh, there's a person, a family, we haven't met them yet, but I think they're from Toronto or certainly Ontario and they bought the home and, uh, uh, seem to be enjoying their time there. Really? Yeah. Well, that's surprising. So we Dan went from zero back up to four people or however. <laughs> they have they have these wild population fluctuations that must drive <laughs> Stats Canada wild. Uh, crazy. We move into a conversation about Scott's off-farm jobs starting with his agriculture representative or ag rep job in Killarney. Well, I, I was uh, really lucky. I got to start in Killarney when I, in, in 1989, the kind of one of the worst periods in agriculture with the droughts that had occurred and so on. But it was, a, it was kind of like uh, baptism by fire. And that was at a time when soil conservation was starting to be getting a lot of attention. There was some new herbicides that were becoming available that made life much different or much better. And uh, and so I, I got to uh, learn in a great ag area, great community. Um, and then in 95, I moved to be the ag rep in Boisevain, and uh, which was uh, kind of my dream job when I was young. And I was in Boisevain there for 10 years. And then in 2005, I, would be, I was part of a committee that had canvassed the government to create a, a new type of applied research farm so that you could demonstrate new ideas and, and products um, on a, a relatively professional scale and make it more accessible and, and relevant to farmers. And, uh, and we were successful in getting that approved. And then they asked me to be the manager of, of the research uh, facility that was called the Westman Ag Diversification Organization. It had existed as an irrigation 
research uh, farm, but was being expanded to kind of have more resources and bigger mandate. And I, I was the manager of that research facility until 2012, when another job opportunity came along. <laughs> I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned. You said Boys of Ain was your dream job, and then we'll talk about your, your new job. What, why was the Boys of Ain location your dream job? You know, growing up, that's where the ag rep office was, and that's where the staff were that you interacted with when you were in 4-H or um, at a field day or something like that. And and uh, and it was close enough to home that I could work professionally and then be at the farm in the evenings and on the weekends easily. In 2012, Scott joined Fall Line Capital a California-based company that buys farms and invests in their productivity. It started in 2011. And if you remember, 2011 was a, a devastating year for flooding. We didn't get anything seeded. There was something like 10 million, 11 million acres unseeded in North Dakota, Manitoba, Saskatchewan that year. And even our research plots didn't get seeded or they were terrible. We got the plot seeder stuck several times. <laughs> we finally had gave up. And uh, so there I was without a crop to, uh, you know, care for through the season and, and a lot of research plots that didn't get established. Um, we, I had some time on my hands. And in the midst of that, I got a call from a friend of mine who I had met while speaking at farmer events in Australia a few years before. We were speaking at no-till farmer events in Australia. And I was speaking about biotech in canola and agriculture, and he was speaking about precision ag. And um, we spent a month together traveling across the uh, across Australia, speaking at these farmer events. Had an amazing time. We were the guests of farmers all across the country, and and uh, you know, just an excellent opportunity to to visit and meet new new farmers. So we became friends, and he phoned me and. June of 2011 to say that he was thinking of creating a new company with a good friend of his from university um, that would be focused on farmland acquisition and then managing the farms with a focus on soil conservation and, and water conservation. And so I agreed to kind of help get the company started and took a sabbatical from the government for the winter of 2011 and 2012. So we packed up my my wife, daughter, and I, and we went down to San Francisco, where uh, the other business partner, the other founder of the company was located. And we spent that winter kind of knocking on doors, developing thesis and um, making connections. And, uh, and then I had arranged, it was just a sabbatical, I would come back to the government. So I came back, managed Wado for the summer of 2012. But over that summer, they were working hard on getting me to, you know, to to uh, leave my 23-year career with the government and join them full time. And I wasn't keen on doing that. I was happy where I was and and was really, you know, close to the community and the family and, and didn't want to move away. And uh, they came up with the idea that if I lived in San Francisco in the wintertime with the, at the head office, uh, and then lived in Delrain in the summertime, uh, but still worked for them full time, just used Delrain as the base, that uh, would I be agreeable to that? And I said, sure, we'd give that a try. And, and here we are, um, you know, 12 years later, where I make this migration south in the fall 
and back here to Manitoba in the spring. What is your job with them, Scott? <laughs> I'm I'm the official Canadian on the. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it, it it's interesting how many things that we're involved with and how I kind of marvel every day that I have some relevance because it's such a you know a different world and so far away from from my roots and and uh, my experiences in the past and so originally my job was focused on um, agronomy but then it was really about uh, finding farms, doing diligence on farms, and then helping develop a management plan on these farms. So we were, were um, in a real estate investment trust, which means that we can buy farmland in certain states in the United States, but nowhere else. And we cannot operate the farms entirely. We can help with some decisions and um, a lot of infrastructure development and so on, but we have to work with local farmers to operate the farms on a day-to-day -day basis. And my role was to be involved in kind of all all aspects of that. My role is kind of to help the staff that we do uh, have in place to, to do this on a day, regular basis. My role is to help them do their job. But after a few years of uh, being in, we're essentially in Silicon Valley in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, we were invited into some opportunities to invest in ag technologies, and that has expanded significantly. It's a big part of what we do as well. So we invest in farms and we develop them. We bring in tile drainage and irrigation systems. We introduce new crops uh, and so on on these farms to increase their value and and improve their uh, productivity. But we also invest in ag technologies. And at, at the beginning, they were kind of focused on what would impact the farmland we own already. Now we invest in technologies that have virtually anything to do with food or agriculture. And I, I play a role in supporting the team that works on the ag tech as well in diligence and helping the companies we've invested in with projects and helping them hone their uh, their uh, discoveries and, and access markets and so on. So in a way, I get to play farmer on all sides of our company, um, giving that farmer's perspective, creating relationships with farmers, taking a look at farms and deciding how to best manage them. Uh, so it, it's 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 fascinating. It's a lot of fun. Scott, let's walk through one of these farm acquisitions. So your company, Fallline, owns the land. Is that is that how the arrangements usually work? And then you hire back the farmers or some other farmers in the area? That's correct. And, you know, we've, we're over a fairly broad geography with a wide variety of crops now. At first, we were focused on crops we knew, like we owned farms in Montana and we were growing peas and wheat and canola and now uh, we do have some permanent crops and um, where we have a number of farms in the south where we're growing cotton and rice what what we did initially is we didn't have a network we didn't really know a lot of people and you would find farms through brokers and see what you know what was possible take a look at it see what sort of uh, opportunities were there 
we were always very thorough in our diligence, at least according to other brokers, and that we did soil testing ourselves and uh, really dived into some of the agronomic uh, issues and agronomic characteristics of a property. But let's say in Mississippi, we, we have a fairly large group of farms near the Alabama border that had been um, had been essentially neglected for over 150 years. It had been farmed prior to the Civil War, but uh, had not been farmed since then. So this broker knows knows of us. He knows that we're come from agriculture and knows how we know how to develop farms. So he contacted us because he saw that we would realize the value of this property, whereas other investment groups would not necessarily see the value of a property that hadn't been farmed for 150 years. And uh, this was a major project where we ended up building surface dams, put in tile drainage, uh, developed irrigation in an area where this was not common. And, uh, and these farms are incredibly productive now. This is soil that you would only dream about. How does a farm? How does a farm that was idle for 150 years with that quality of soil, how, how does that happen that it isn't farmed? Yeah, I would say that's certainly a rare find in, in the U.S. There isn't going to be a lot of opportunities like that. But you have regions where things have fall, fallen back into some you know, traditional grazing and there isn't, a, there isn't grain infrastructure there. There isn't... Um, this is an area that was actually concentrated, the last remaining concentration of catfish farming. And uh, as far as why it hadn't been developed before, I think it, because it, it takes a lot of effort to bring it into production. And uh, um, that, that it was maybe just not realized by others, but there is not a lot of these properties that exist in the U.S. There still are a few, but that was a real gem to find that that region. And uh, there was um, we have about eight different farmers operating that farm now or those fields. And uh, if we look at in the West, you know, we're developing farms there, but it's pretty straightforward where you're you, you, you have a water right, you have a patch of land, you you develop an irrigation system. So you talked about the tile drainage, um, irrigation. Is this something that we could do more of on the prairies just in general? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating now that I've had this experience across this broad geographic area of the U.S. that when you get down to the south, you know, they get 60 and 70 inches of rainfall. But if you don't have irrigation for two weeks in July, you can lose a crop. So you still need, you know, six to eight inches of, of supplemental moisture down there. Whereas that's not necessarily going to give you the same benefit up, up in the northern plains. Um, tile drainage, it works in certain situations, but not others. And I'm, I'm doing some tiling or I've done some tiling this past year on our farm at Dan. And uh, it looks like it's working, but I'm not sure if it's going to, you know, be worth the effort on on that much more of our farm. Like it was very specific situation that with topography that allowed us to do it relatively easily. Um, I'm not I'm not going to presume that 
we could do a lot more cleaning up and improving in Western Canada because it'd be very specific to the farm. Um, but when you have that much rainfall in the south, tile drainage and irrigation on the same field is uh, often worth the effort. What's the sent the local sentiment usually when when a big outside company comes in and and cleans up a farm? Like, do you find that that the communities are fairly supportive, especially if you can turn around and hire farmers from the area, or is it are you seeing more uh, on a negative side? Yeah, it's um, it's certainly something we're very sensitive to. You know, I remember when they were they were trying to get me to leave my job and, and join Fall Line. Uh, the, my friend promised me that I would never be compromising my values as far as, you know, supporting the community or, or trying to do the right thing. And I, I have to say that's true, that we, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors to maximize the, their deployment of funds. But um, we also know that if you are a good community partner, if you're uh, appreciated in the community, that's just gonna open up a lot more opportunities. Other farmers could will bring you deals, people will want to work with you. If the community does well, then your farms will become more valuable. You know, We have to sell them at some point um, in order for our investors to get their money back. So you have a, you kind of want a whole ecosystem doing well. And you're, at least from our standpoint, having one big farmer take it over would be efficient and easy, but it doesn't necessarily maximize the returns as well. That um, working with a few smaller farmers on a large property uh, has benefits beyond just better appreciation within the community. So we have to look at each situation, situation specifically to see what's possible, but uh, we generally have uh, more than one operator on a, on a large property, and we're 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 different than a lot of other farmland uh, investment firms because we are coming from agriculture and farms, but also really kind of getting me in deep with the infrastructure development and specific operational efficiencies of a farm. And uh, and so when you're at that kind of level, having more than one operator on the farm is not a not a problem because you're there managing things and, and really aware of things already. Whereas if you were, let's say, a, a big entity from far away, bought a property, you just want to rent it to one person and collect your check at the end of the year. And that's not what we're about at all. We also are focused on our on this soil conservation and soil moisture conservation as well. Um, that's a big part of why investors chose us because we know that we're they know that we're going to maintain the soil asset that that's the asset preservation that they they're getting all their uh, their their value out of and you you need the right tenants to do that and and having uh, uh, people that have like minds to to what we're focused on is important too. How do you make yourself appreciated within the community do you have some techniques that work well i i you know we do uh have staff in the regions that are parts of you know part of the community in, with the local service clubs and so on we 
try to uh, be in a regular communication with our farmers. And we actually bring all our farmers together for an event once, uh, well, as often as possible, but the, the main event is once every other year. And we bring all our ag tech investments together at the same time. So they get to, they get to interact with farmers and the farmers get to see some of the really cool stuff that we're involved with on, on the ag tech side. And it's a sense of community. I can tell you that it, it has become kind of a, um, uh, an event that I, I think everybody looks forward to being a part of. And so um, we try and foster that as much as possible. In Mississippi, um, there's a new uh, initiative with Bungie, Chevron, and Corteva to grow winter canola down there. Will your Mississippi farm be growing winter canola? Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't, we 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 might have been part of those discussions. I don't know if uh, they're now acknowledging the uh, acknowledging that officially, but we've been the only canola producer in Louisiana and Mississippi the last couple of years. And when I say we are our farmers on our farms, we've been experimenting with winter canola um, instead of a cover crop. And there is uh, certain advantages with winter canola uh, over winter wheat, for instance, because it'll mature a little sooner, breaks some of the diseases better. And uh, there's a uh, the, the, there's just a, a number of agronomic benefits of trying winter canola or even winter rapeseed in that region. The problem has been the weather is too extreme, uh, too much rain. There's been some ice storms. We had a lot of water, water, <laughs> uh, goose damage and duck damage to the crop a couple of years ago. So we haven't had uh, tremendous success, but we can see the benefit if we can get past some of these specific problems. And it there's a, a very large potential there if this does start to click, if they develop variety specific for the region, it, it, there is this gap in their farming season where they have, <clears throat> you know, they have a, a lot of excess resources, a lot of rainfall time, um, and they need to put cover on the land because of erosion potential. And we think that winter brassicas really, really have a, a potential there. And what's been lacking for the most part has been a local market. There is a lot of canola, uh, not a lot, but there is canola produced in Oklahoma and some of that region, and they're still trucking it all the way up to Velva, North Dakota to sell it. So as um, as the markets develop, uh, I think you're going to see acreage increase dramatically down there. And we definitely would like to be, a, you know, we're going to be a part of that as that develops our farms. You did a presentation at Ag Days and Brandon in January about some of the stuff you've learned on the technology side of the work you're doing. Can you can you give me a couple of highlights from that presentation? There's a lot of things that are that's happening right now that are kind of worthy of mention. But I think for me, it is this revolution that's occurring in discovering new crop protection methods and platforms using proteins, whether it's RNA or peptides or micropeptides or or other types of proteins that you can build a whole suite of crop protection products out of essentially <laughs> you know reconstructed nitrogen so that there's no impact on any other 
living thing to once you've developed your let's say this RNA insecticide for Colorado potato beetle or flea beetles and uh, the the product is incredibly effective once it's in the insect and yet it has no impact on any other insect wouldn't affect butterflies or honeybees or anything like that and they're relatively inexpensive to create um, the biggest challenge seems to be how do you get it into the organism how do you get it into the sclerotia body or the fusarium or the insect and those are things that are being overcome uh, but the base baseline ability to um, impact another living thing very very effectively and inexpensively with with these protein-based pesticides is extremely exciting beyond that there's robotics companies that are getting to the point that you know we will see some of this um, technology being used on broadacre farms uh, relatively soon. But we're an investor in a couple of spray drone companies, and one in particular that has created a drone from the ground up. That it's a most sprayer drones are kind of retrofitted other drone retrofitted drone drones that were developed for other purposes. This drone was meant to be a sprayer right from the ground up, and they're looking at application rates in you know around 100 acres to even more uh, per, per hour like rivaling um, conventional high clearance sprayers and uh, I think in the next let's say four or five years you'll either have a drone sprayer or you'll know somebody that has a drone sprayer and I think that's going to change how we spray we're going to you know, spot spray, we're going to spray at different times, we're going to be spraying even maybe even different products. But I know that will be a, a profound change on how we protect our crops going forward. What's the advantage? Like, why why will this revolution happen so quickly? And, and you talked about being able to spot spray and, and spray at different times, spray different products, possibly. Is that enough to create this revolution? Um, I don't know, maybe I'm um, I'm just looking at this thinking how cool it is. I know one of the aspects is it's very like these sprayers are a fraction of the cost of a high clearance sprayer. Um, you'll be able to spray under different conditions. I think it'll make you uh, allow you to target applications better as when I talk about this robotics aspect, how it's going to make these sprayers uh, more precise in, in variable rate application and spraying only where things are needed. That, that will be part of the puzzle. Uh, and it, for, for me, I don't spray insecticides on a regular basis and I don't spray fungicides on a regular basis, but I might spray them in a targeted way now that I can do it effectively. And, um, and so that's, you know, partly where I see it changing uh, from from my own perspective as a as a farmer in Manitoba. Are there any of these new technologies that you're using on your farm? You you mentioned that you would use a drone when you could. Is there anything else? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because even when I managed the research farm, the work that I did on on my own farm tended to get neglected. I think I'm maybe typical of a lot of farmers where you have big expectations and ideas at the beginning of the year and by the time the end of the year rolls around you, you you're not very good at, at doing proper trial results and so on so um i i would say there's not a lot of experimentation on my farm because i probably wouldn't do it very well I'm, i don't have any extra staff and 
I will be getting some new uh, a new product tomorrow that uh, a friend of mine in the industry is wanting me to try. And that's generally what I do each year is a couple of things that's kind of new on the market. And I'll, I'll do it more as a demo. Um, and I, I miss that, but I just, I don't feel I would, I would be doing a good job at it. So I, I don't try and focus on, on doing research on my farm anymore. Um, and, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was like a research farm for 25 years <laughs> up until recently. We could talk lots more, but thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. Yeah. Great talking to you again. Scott Day Farms near my brother's farm at Dand, a tiny community where our fathers went to school together and where Scott and I participated in 4-H, church, and slow pitch. You can still find Dand on the map and in our memories, even though it barely exists in physical form anymore. I have a lot of conversations with Scott. Usually he's helping me wrap my mind around some new technology. I'm happy to have shared this conversation with you. Canola Watch is an agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada with support from the three prairies-based canola grower organizations, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. At the core of Canola Watch is a timely agronomy email with regular updates throughout the growing season on pests, weather, fertilizer management, and other topics. If you are not already subscribed, please sign up at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thank you very much for listening.